Hello and welcome to Building Local Power, a podcast dedicated to thought-provoking conversations about how we can challenge corporate monopolies and expand the power of people to shape their own future. I'm Jess Delfiaco, the host of Building Local Power and Communications Manager here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. For more than 45 years, ILSR has worked to build thriving, equitable communities where power, wealth, and accountability remain in local hands. Welcome to the show. Today, I am joined by Neil Seldman, who is the director of ILSR's Waste to Wealth program, as well as Gary Liss, who is the vice president of Zero Waste USA, and Bob Geddert, who is the president of the National Recycling Coalition. So welcome to the show, all of you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, we are so happy to have you. We're going to talk about the Recycling is Infrastructure 2 campaign, which Neil, Gary, and Bob are all involved with, as well as the proposed American Recycling Infrastructure Plan. And I think, Neil, I will give it to you to maybe give us a little bit more context uh, before we get going with questions. So, Thank you, Jess. And uh, thank uh, you, Gary and, and Bob, for joining us. I want to point out that Gary and Bob have each put in decades upon decades of work on recycling, uh, zero waste, and it's been a pleasure working with them from the point of view of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. We've done many projects and many good discussions together. This is a very nice occasion for myself. We, uh, we're addressing recycling in the middle of a lot of dynamic change in the country, in, in the recycling and wasting fields, and we're hoping to clarify some of those. I just want to point out that the key, in my opinion, to the next few years is getting money, investment capital to the local governments for the necessary infrastructure changes for composting, reuse, recycling, and of course, uh, waste prevention. There are a lot of different approaches to this. Uh, the issue of extended producer responsibility is very much in the air at the state level and at the federal level. And the efforts that we're looking at do not mean that EPR is, is not a useful tool. Um, EPR is certainly a useful tool, but we all know that it's very controversial. It's happening at the state and federal level. And from my interview of good many uh, people promoting EPR, the issue at, in Congress will probably take three years, if not more, to get through Congress uh, under the best of circumstances. As we know, Congress is split right now. So the importance of this interview is to find out uh, is, not is, but what are the alternatives for immediate injection of cash to local governments, cities, counties, to move this recycling movement, zero waste movement forward. And I think what we're gonna hear is that there are alternatives and that these alternatives are involved in legislation that is actually in the pipeline already in Congress. So the potential for uh, the uh, Recycling is Infrastructure 2 campaign and, of course, the American Recycling Infrastructure Plan is very pertinent uh, because uh, we will be hopefully getting these infrastructure bills through Congress and the monies will be flowing to the local level. And now I'm going to look forward to how Gary and uh, Bob describe what they're involved in. And again, thank you for the audience uh, listening, and thank you to Bob, Jess, and uh, Gary for participating. Thanks, Neil. So I think that leads us right to Gary. Could you talk about what the Recycling is Infrastructure 2 campaign, which Neil just mentioned, um, what that is and what you're advocating for, what your strategy is to make this change? 
Yes, uh, th thank you so much, Jess and Neil, for this opportunity. One of the things that was happening earlier this year was a new administration and Institute for Local Self-Reliance and Zero Waste USA started talking about how to influence them to focus on recycling and zero waste uh, more broadly. And working with the uh, National Recycling Coalition, decided to do a letter to the president and vice president Harris in March of uh, 2021, outlining uh, the types of things we were hoping they would do to uh, promote all the uh, benefits of expanded recycling, uh, waste reduction, reuse, uh, and composting uh, to get to zero waste that would have many benefits, including job creation and uh, addressing uh, climate change, which was clearly a priority for this administration. The National Recycling Coalition joined in that effort around April and May and helped follow up the letter to the president and vice president with a change.org petition. And then uh, National Recycling Coalition led the development of the American Recycling Infrastructure Plan. Some of the key messages that, that we've been advocating for is that recycling is infrastructure too, that in all the talk about infrastructure, there hadn't been as much attention focused on it, particularly in the general media, that recycling, uh, reuse, composting creates lots of jobs, but needs um, infusion of capital to address uh, some of the issues that Neil was talking about in his introductory comments. And the messages we were trying to get across is uh, for U.S. Senators and Congress representatives to understand that recycling needs to be part of this. And one of the ideas is that include as eligible activities for all infrastructure projects, use of reuse systems, recycled content, and compost products. That's one of the, the basic messages. Uh, Bob will be going into more of the details that we came up with. Uh, the campaign has been doing uh, monthly webinars, and in our webinar in July, Bob highlighted the details of the American Recycling Infrastructure Plan, which our network had been calling upon. What are, what are we specifically advocating for in, in, in more detail? And that's what the plan is outlining. Could you talk a little bit more about these discussions you've been organizing? I mean, you, you're bringing a lot of different voices into this conversation to kind of determine priorities. So what, what are some of the things you've discussed in these monthly webinars? What are you planning to talk about in the future? And kind of who's involved? Sure. So far, we, we've uh, focused on the American Recycling Infrastructure Plan. Most recently, the better bottle bill, uh, the best bottle bill uh, possible that Institute for Local Self-Reliance hosted in, in August. And that was recommended as part of the American Recycling Infrastructure Plan to go for and support a national bottle bill. We've done other webinars earlier, just trying to figure out what has been done in terms of advocating for recycling infrastructure. And we've had convened and invited the, uh, the key lobbyists who are at the table already in D.C. to have them tell us what, what was going on and, and what could be uh, possible to include in the message. 
And that's been one of the big successes. Um, we Our campaign doesn't have a big budget, uh, actually no budget. <laughs> and we are relying on understanding what is happening in D.C. by engaging and involving uh, the different lobbyists who are already there, like people from ISRI, the Institute for Scrap Recycling Industries, and the Solid Waste Association in North America the Break Free from Plastic Network. So environmental, local government, and industry lobbyists that are working every day in D.C. on these issues have been part of, of our campaign. And some of our earlier webinars were, were getting their input, which then led into the American Recycling Infrastructure Plan. Gary, I want to ask you a, a quick question here. I know that the Break Free from Plastic bill at the, at the federal level has been put in in through Congress. But could you just give us a, a bit of detail about the bottle bill component of the break of the general break free bill uh, and the latest developments in in Congress as far as the uh, the bottle bill is concerned, the national bottle bill? Yeah, um, actually, it's a really interesting uh, area of uh, this activity. In Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act introduced most recently by Representative Lowenthal from California and uh, Senator uh, Merkley. It includes beverage containers as part of an extended producer responsibility EPR system. And that was uh, the type of thing that was of concern to some folks, including the uh, National Sierra Club uh, just recently came out with a beverage container guidance document saying to be careful about doing exactly that, that it was uh, Sierra Club highlighted that the bottle bills are much more effective in getting recovery of quality materials when there's a deposit on containers directly, like in the 10 states that already have beverage container deposits incorporated into them, that there's a better return and recovery of high quality material from those programs than there might be through a beverage container EPR program. And because of that concern, the Sierra Club just came out with this guidance document highlighting those details. What's being proposed that we understand is a separate and distinct national bottle bill. It's not the first time it's been introduced, but it's building off of the momentum coming out of the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act. The people who are working on that uh, worked on the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act, and they hope to have a standalone national bottle bill coming forward shortly. Thank you, Gary. I had a question about, well, two things. One is kind of why why now? Like, why is this the moment for, for this change? And then what's your sense of, I guess, awareness and support among legislators for what you're arguing for? Um, are you having to do a lot of education or are people already pretty receptive and understanding of the issues that you're advocating about? Well, as far as why now is infrastructure is is uh, finally getting its uh, due. There have been many uh, folks involved in championing the need to invest in our national infrastructure, from transportation to energy to communications. 
And even on recycling, five years ago, ISRI highlighted that they were working on the Recycle Act and proposing to move forward with that. The National Recycling Coalition also discussed those types of issues uh, five years ago. But it was with the new administration, commitment to infrastructure in the time of COVID as not only helping to address investment and infusion of funds into the economy to strengthen us to build back better, but also as a once in a generation investment in competing in the global marketplace. So infrastructure and getting the the entire country economy moving in a more efficient way has become something that is of bipartisan interest. And in fact, in August, the uh, 2700 page HR 3684 Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act was approved by the United States Senate which was fantastic. In July, the Compost Act was introduced. The Recycle Act had been uh, introduced before and the Recover Act and several other acts. And the way uh, we, we understand things are happening in Congress is people focus on a particular subject area like the Recycle Act, and they may not think that that bill will get adopted as is, but they may get be part of another bill. And that's exactly what happened. The Recycle Act was incorporated into the Bipartisan Infrastructure Investment Act in August. And as a result, we have several hundred million dollars of funds targeted for implementing the Save Our Seas Act that was adopted and signed into law last year in 2020. Millions of dollars for the EPA to help on recycling right outreach and education programs and up to $3 billion to deal with the critically important problems associated with battery recycling and addressing the problems of battery fires, particularly from lithium ion batteries that's burning down our infrastructure all over the country. So the Bipartisan Investment Act is well on its way to addressing some really important aspects of what our needs are in the recycling world and the zero waste arena. So now is the time, while there's this momentum, while there's this focus on infrastructure, to be part of all that movement. And we're not having to convince people. Uh, the, the congressional leaders have been hearing about these things for years. What we're needing to do is get our best ideas go going forward to them to incorporate into these different acts that can then be massaged in the sausage making process that is congressional legislation into something that will get enough votes to get through both the Senate and the House. Gary, thank you so much for these details. You've been a terrific liaison with the recycling movement and zero waste movement between us and Congress. And I just want to let the audience know that Gary has been identified as the vice president of Zero Waste USA, a nonprofit. But I also want to point out that he's a very formative participant in the Sierra Club, as he mentioned uh, earlier, and also with the National Recycling Coalition. So uh, Gary covers a lot of bases. And as always, we'll have we'll have links to those different organizations and any other resources that are mentioned in this conversation um, in the show notes for this episode on our website.
As we transition uh, temporarily to Bob Geddert, I want to point out, of course, he's the president of the National Recycling Coalition, but Bob has been a very active player and among his many accomplishments, he took over the zero waste program in Austin, Texas, which is a leading U.S. city. He oversaw the zero waste business plan, which is a quite a remarkable document. And he oversaw the development of the zero waste plan for Austin. And among the other great things he's done, he immediately renamed the Department of uh, Solid Waste in Austin to the Department of Resource Recovery, uh, which is a great psychological and uh, strategic move. So it's a pleasure to be talking to Bob, given his quite successful career in zero waste and recycling. Thank you, Neil. Thank you. And pleasure to be speaking to our audience today. Yeah, so I think Gary mentioned um, trying to kind of package all of your best ideas in order to to get them out there and into the hands of, of people who can can make them happen. So I think it's up to you to tell us what the American Recycling Infrastructure Plan is that you've developed and how it was constructed. Yes, and thank you, Jess, for this program. And and the the question at hand, when when we first heard uh, President Biden speaking about infrastructure and the jobs bill early on, our first thoughts were on the great opportunity before us uh, of new roads and bridge construction infrastructure bill and that it could utilize reused, recycled, and, and composted material and, and uh, all the way across the country. And, and that was our starting point there. Then our thoughts expanded to the fact that our recycling infrastructure across the country is aged and in need of rebuilding to meet the recent 21st century needs. So to bring those thoughts further, forward, we developed the, the Recycling Infrastructure 2 campaign that Gary was speaking of, expanding the traditional definition of infrastructure to include recycling infrastructure. Moving forward from there, we built up the American Recycling Infrastructure Plan on two starting platforms. We incorporated the basic initiatives from some prior advocacy plans from some numerous partners of ours. We wanted to start with a, a good starting base of, of some very good ideas. And, and then we added some NRC policy initiatives that supported waste reduction, reuse, and recycling activities that were not addressed in these other plans. So we've built around these plans. This strategy created a comprehensive 50 initiative plan that is synergetic and, and creative, and it, it uh, approaches an infrastructure that's uh, built around the three R's, the reduce, reuse, and recycle. And the plan was released on July 15th. It was sent to congressional staff and media contacts. And it has 50 initiatives, like I mentioned, and includes requests for funding of $6.6 .6 billion in the first year. And over a three-year package plan, the plan recommends a total investment of $16.3 billion. So that, that was our starting point. Uh, we, we are now campaigning for the inclusion of these 50 initiatives in the infrastructure conversations. Bob, if I could interject a quick question here. I know that the, uh, the NRC ARIP plan drew on other plans. Could you just mention the other plans that you analyzed, curated, and eventually harmonized into your ARIP plan? Absolutely. Yes. The, the other plans we worked on, and, and they're very, very good advocacy plans. We, we, we pulled strengths 
from the pay it, paying it forward, the recycling partnership plan, the US food loss and waste policy action plan, which is a partnership of Harvard Law Policy Clinic, ReFed, NRDC, and WWF. Also recommendations to reduce plastic from pollution from the Break Free from Plastics Act, priority plastics actions from President Biden's first year, and the Compost Act from the Compost Infrastructure Coalition. All of those had very strong recommendations that we pulled from. And that's that's about 25 to 30 of our recommendations. And then we built around there and added another 25 recommendations and basic initiatives to create our 50 initiative plan. Great. Thanks. I, I, I think people will appreciate that methodology. So this is this is substantial to say the least. <laughs> There's a lot in here. Could you share what are what are the highlights of the plan and then how do you picture each of them changing recycling in the United States? Yes. And and I'll, I'll start obviously I can't list all 50 of them but I'll highlight some of the major initiatives. You know, funding the implementation of cart-based collection to improve recycling services to 38 million residents in underserved communities, recognizing that, uh, you know, major cities may have uh, curbside recycling, but some of the underserved communities that can't afford it don't have uh, recycling services. Invest in new and existing material recovery facilities, MRFs. Certain areas um, uh, don't have MRF sheds that hamper collection of recyclables. Invest in hub and spoke transfer infrastructure in the rural areas where it's more efficient to create collection infrastructure, recycling collection infrastructure through a hub and spoke system rather than a single serve, single stream MRF collection system. Invest in recycling infrastructure development for lithium ion batteries. As we invest in electric vehicles, we need to develop a battery system that doesn't catch fires at the MRFs and can be recyclable and can support the electric industry. My favorite that I wanna highlight is require infrastructure use of recycled content products through the federal agencies and and, uh, through private agencies as well too, to support and require that all federally funded infrastructure projects use these recycled and compost products on all the federally funded infrastructure projects across the nation. That would be a huge support for our, our recycling infrastructure if every single infrastructure project across the nation used to reuse or recycle their compost products. Thank you, Bob. We'll continue talking about the campaign and the American Recycling Infrastructure Plan after a short break. Thanks for listening to the show. If you're enjoying this conversation, I hope you'll consider heading over to ILSR.org donate to help support us. Your donation makes this podcast possible, as well as all the work that we do here at ILSR. Again, you can visit ILSR.org donate to make a contribution today. Any amount is sincerely appreciated. And while you're on our website, you might want to check out the other shows in the ILSR podcast family. They cover everything from broadband to local energy to composting. With that, let's head back to the show. I think because this is the Building Local Power podcast, I do, I want to push on how this might affect the the local level, what provisions in the plan are focused on the local level, so cities, counties, independent businesses. Could you talk about that? 
Yeah, I, I run some numbers and, and $3 billion uh, would be available through 10 infrastructure programs in the plan offering grants to local cities, counties, solid waste districts, and Native American tribes. And $875 million is, is offered through 10 infrastructure programs in the plan offering grants to small businesses. $1 billion through a, a, a infrastructure program in the plan for MRF businesses. MRFs could be large or small throughout the country. The intent of all these proposed infrastructure initiatives in the plan, as, as, as we wrote it, are, are to provide opportunities to all communities through the lens of justice, equity, diversion, and inclusion. However, those values are not written into legislation, but rather in rulemaking and grant application process, which come down the road. All of us need to be at the table when the rules of the grants are written. And so it's very important that our audience, as, as well as our organizations, be involved after the infrastructure bills are passed, that we are at the table when those rules are written. Bob, thank you for that last point, because the reality is that things can change very quickly when you write the rules, so we have to be on top of it. I have a couple of other points, uh, actually, questions. Do you foresee this money flowing directly to cities and counties and towns, or do you see it going through state agencies, which are responsible for solid waste management? That's a good question. And we're initially writing it to include local communities. And as, as I wish to be involved, that, that these, this legislation passes the buck to the EPA or the Department of Energy or one of the, uh, the uh, federal agencies. So if, if, if we can get this, these initiatives passed through Congress, Congress assigns it to a federal agency to develop rules, and develop the grant programs. The grant programs are then developed internally at a federal agency, and they develop those assignments of where the grants will be delivered to. Generally speaking, they have their habits from past practices. And what we need to be at that table to talk to them about local communities. And local communities are not state level, they're more, more local. And we need to be more inclusive, not just at the city level, but at the Native American tribe level, as well as even more local at not nonprofits, grassroots levels as well. And, and the, the, we, we need to be more inclusive. And that conversation needs to be at that time when the application rules are being developed. They're very helpful and all the more reason why people like you and Gary have to be uh, at the table. One last point I wanna make, not a question, but as I anticipate as, as you're rolling this out, that uh, when the money flows to cities, counties, towns, or Native American agencies, et cetera, the locals will be making decisions on their infrastructure. As you know, some forms of EPR take that decision-making authority and remove it to the, um, the uh, stewardship organizations, the corporations. So I wanted to emphasize the, the, the continued tradition of local decision-making as the money flows through either directly from federal agencies or through state agencies. And I also, I'm assuming that if, it's, if the money goes to a state agency, there would be administrative fees that are covered so the states don't have the burden of handling money without uh, administrative support. Absolutely, absolutely agree there. Gary has a point yeah. there. 
Yeah, I just want to interject that the main EPR bill is a good example of a essentially a compromise in which it was the municipalities that have been struggling since the China National Sword policies were adopted that have made it more, much more difficult for marketing materials and increasing costs for recycling programs. That it was those municipalities that wanted to continue their recycling programs but couldn't fund it that led to Maine adopting an EPR bill that will charge the industry that sells uh, products into the state, charge them a fee that will then help fund the municipal recycling programs. And uh, this infusion of uh, infrastructure funds could have the same impact in terms of uh, making available funding for the needs of municipalities at the local level so they'll be able to continue and hopefully expand their waste reduction, reuse, recycling, and composting programs. And most of the composting interest around the country is huge, but many places don't have composting facilities. So the infusion of this type of funding could uh, contribute significantly to enabling a lot more communities to move forward and to move forward with innovative ways like community-based composting, like the Institute for Local Self-Reliance has been advocating for as a key component so that there's all different sizes and scopes of composting and recycling opportunities that will hopefully come out of these types of investments. Thank you, Gary. Just to point out that the type of EPR that uh, Maine has passed, the first in the nation, is called EPR reimbursement because the fees are reimbursed the cities as opposed to some EPR systems where the money stays with the industry and they conduct the recycling activity. I also want to point out that the infrastructure for small towns and rural areas uh, on composting is critical because all over the country, if you produce good compost, there's a market for it year round. So this is a real boost to the communities to divert maybe one third or up to 40% of their waste. And it also creates jobs, small businesses, landscaping businesses, et cetera. So infrastructure money on composting is, is critical. Thank you, Gary, for, the, for adding that. I uh, just wanted to go off that point. So this could be a question for, for any or all of you and ask about small businesses and nonprofits that are currently involved in uh, reuse and recycling or composting. And kind of what barriers they're facing now and what policies might come out of this plan to change things for them, if there's any examples that you could share. I, I could start by talking to talking about a project that my colleague Brenda Platt and uh, our compost initiative, uh, she has been working for several years with the Baltimore Compost Collective. And um, they're moving along. It's a small business. Young people are involved. It's a very charismatic leader. But they are restricted from expanding their collections and processing of compost, even though they could sell everything or use everything, because a lot of their compost just goes to community gardens. And they need a truck. Uh, you, I don't have to describe what you need uh, for a composting business. So they're, they're, they're alive, they're working, and they can do better and expand much more with an injection of capital. So that would be one ex a small example of an inner city program and I'm sure that would be, if the capital were available, it would be replicated throughout the country in small towns and, and rural areas. I would, I would add that many of the initiatives in, in the American Recycling Infrastructure Plan 
um, that focus on waste reduction and reuse grants are specifically focused on small businesses. The large businesses totally ignore waste reduction and reuse opportunities. They, 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 they're very focused on large city recycling opportunities. So the waste reduction and reuse grant opportunities are very much open to the small business community. And, and, and an example of one of the initiatives is establishing reuse warehouses and reuse centers uh, throughout the country uh, with a $250 million annual investment. Uh, you reminded me, uh, for instance, there's a wonderful model in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, where uh, money is being invested to help get reusables out of households into the warehouse system and, of course, distribution system ultimately. The uh, key point to that is, in terms of job creation, the, the investing in reuse creates upwards of 250 times more jobs than landfilling or burning that same material. Those are statistics uh, researched by the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and that's why there's that emphasis in the American Recycling Infrastructure Plan, not only on recycling, uh, but also on waste reduction, designing things out, getting it right from the beginning, changing the systems, and uh, setting up reuse systems, and building on, I, I call it the hidden investment in the reuse industry, because it's hidden because most local governments don't pay a lot of attention to it because they don't see it as diverting that many tons of materials. And reusables are typically 2 to 6% of the total amount of materials uh, discarded in any given community. But zero waste is all about not only uh, diverting tons, but reinvesting those resources in the community. And the American Recycling Infrastructure Plan is based on that idea that we should not only invest in recycling and composting, but also in those other activities upstream to redesign the systems and to set up reuse programs and reuse facilities and, and help uh, with innovations like fix-it clinics and repair fairs and other new uh, reuse systems for reusable foodware that are being pioneered all over the country just in the last year or two. Uh, so that's what we're envisioning some of that uh, funding to go into, putting more of an investment. Uh, so we're not just investing in diversion from landfills and incinerators, we're investing and reinvest, uh, reinvesting those resources in the local economy. I just want to add to that great statement, uh, just a couple of things. Reused stores pay sales tax. Recyc most recycling uh, projects don't. Urban Ore, which is a reuse organization in Berkeley, a uh, reuse company, excuse me, they are, they're paying a, a quarter of a million dollars this year in sales tax. According to Reuse Minnesota, the number of jobs is multiplying, as Gary said, Second Chance Baltimore has grown from 13 workers to over 200 workers in the last few years. And I hear from all the reuse people that I interview that sales are booming during COVID, doubling and tripling their gross revenues. And also, the, the, Gary mentioned the companies. There are such great names, the Bottle Underground. I can't think, oh, uh, a Conscious Container, the Reloop platform. And it's very interesting because most of these new businesses, and there are dozens, as, and, and Gary, I'm sure, could list more. 
just like the old days in the 70s, most of these projects, enterprises are run by women, started and run by women, mm -hmm. uh, just like the drop-off centers. So we're really seeing a re reoccurrence in both composting and reuse of the early enthusiasm that we had in early recycling. And finally, these are where the growth numbers are coming from with recycling. Composting is soaring and reuse is soaring. So we're, we're really, uh, if you will, uh, filling out the whole panoply of strategies, not just recycling, but the composting reuse. And people are just so creative that it, we want money flowing to them because we need this creativity to get to zero waste. Unfortunately, the other thing that's soaring is single-use plastics, and yes, yes. Uh, the American Recycling Infrastructure Plan calls for eliminating oil depletion allowances and other subsidies of the plastics industry embedded in federal policy and federal budget. And there's many uh, uh, policies that need to be addressed. The American Recycling Infrastructure Plan didn't try to address the, all of the different policies, but did look at those that would impact on infrastructure and the differential of, of virgin versus recycled content being influenced by federal subsidies. And we uh, recommended in the plan to eliminate a whole variety of federal subsidies as one of the tools for funding that plan. There are a number of other funding mechanisms, uh, Bob, you might want to highlight also in the plan. This is a plan not just how to spend money, but it's how to generate the cash needed to be implementing these types of projects. And even if this doesn't go forward at the federal level, the ideas in this plan could be applied at the state level and, and uh, communities around the country could advocate for their state to adopt similar funding mechanisms as Bob's about to describe in the plan. And, and just piggyback on, on Gary's statement there, eliminating federal subsidies. Uh, the plan states adopting a set of federal government source reduction and waste elimination policies is one initiative. Stop subsidizing plastic producers, particularly in, in federal purchasing policies. Stop all subsidies for chemical recycling also known as advanced recycling and conversion technologies and alternative technologies and support policies to reduce waste, El eliminate federal subsidies to fossil fuel industries that fuel the climate crisis and elim eliminate federal subsidies to mining, extract uh, extracting and manufacturing of products. So that's what Gary re was referencing there. And, and we also are, are proposing a funding mechanism to support many of these activities in our plan, ad adopting a national job, a green jobs fee on landfills and incinerators, it, it, just to a, a $20 a ton fee at all landfills and incinerators to generate revenue to support these initiatives and fees on non-recyclable packaging or products that are toxic to the environment or create needless waste. And then these fees would be a, a producer responsibility fee that would be collected to pay for these infrastructure expenses as well, too. I want to add a historical note to this. Go ahead. Way back in the early 70s, uh, Nottingham, New Hampshire was one of the first communities to get involved yeah. in recycling, small town, of course. And um, there was a gentleman, his last name was McDonough. He had a plan to reverse the subsidies to virgin extraction 
by giving credits to every town that was doing recycling, the same equivalent mm. extraction. Now, that would be ideal, of course, just to let you know that the great minds have been thinking like this for 40, 50 years. So now it's time to put them all into practice to save the recycling, improve jobs and climate, etc. But, but Neil, that is actually a model that's being implemented in Berkeley for the service fee, where the city of Berkeley is paying urban ore the same amount per ton as they're paying to landfill materials that have to go to landfill. So that same idea is, 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 is being implemented as a service fee in Berkeley uh, right today. Yes, very important. And just to let people know, Urban Ore has a, a contract to be literally at the transfer station where the, the, the trucks are dumping it and then it's getting put in the trailers and they can pick out, they're professionally trained, of course, reusable, recyclable materials. And they're getting, I believe, about 100 tons a week. And they, that's what they're getting paid for. They get $47 and change, which is exactly what the city would have to pay to tip it but actually urban ore is saving them money because there's no transportation to the landfill because urban ore is literally taking it and bringing it into their warehouse for processing and marketing. So thank, thank you, Gary. Uh, uh, the Berkeley service fee is a, is a very important precedent. Thanks to all of you. This is, there's, I feel like we had a lot of information crammed into the last five minutes or so. <laughs> and unfortunately, we are getting towards the end of our time, so we, we can't keep digging into it. But um, I did want to ask, just to sort of wrap up, how do you see the timeline for for ARIP going forward? And then how can folks get involved either with the plan itself or with the Recycling is Infrastructure 2 campaign? How can they you know, bring these ideas to their communities? So I guess I'll throw it to, to Gary to start. On September 28th, we'll be having at 2 p.m. Eastern another webinar, one of our monthly webinars, updating on what's in the proposed infrastructure bills. And we're inviting the lobbyists I mentioned earlier that we've been collaborating with to highlight their understanding of what's in. Then at the National Recycling Congress on November 3rd and 4th, well, we'll be having a number of sessions on the Recycling is Infrastructure 2 campaign. You can find out more information about that National Recycling Congress at nrcrecycles.org. To connect with the Recycling is Infrastructure 2 campaign, we've set up a Google group, a little old school for some of you, but it works for a lot of us. And the Google group is uh, Recycling Infrastructure at googlegroups.com. And that would be a good place to uh, get uh, resources in the future. We'll hope to develop a website, but we don't have a particular location yet for all the materials. But if you sign on with the Google group, we also have a, a link for getting campaign notices to be supporter of the plan, supporter of the original letter to the president and Vice President Harris on the, the needs for pursuing this approach. So those are some of the best ways to connect. And Bob, for the American Recycling Infrastructure Plan, do we have a link that we can share with folks on that? We do. If you go to ILSR.org, you'll find all these links there. I have a very appropriate way of ending this interview. And that is by using the phrase that Gary has made famous. If you're not for zero waste, how much waste are you for? It's a great question. And Gary's been asking it. Uh, quietly as well as loudly <laughs> for many years. And Gary 
And Bob, it's been a pleasure having this discussion. Of course, we're going to keep this going on many, many different uh, forums and venues. And Jess, thank you so much for giving us this time as part of our uh, Building Local Power programs. Thank you for this great conversation. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Building Local Power podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. You can find links to what we discussed today by going to ilsr.org and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our many newsletters and connect with us on social media. We hope you'll also take the opportunity to help us out with a gift that helps produce this very podcast and supports the research and resources we make available for free on our website. Finally, we ask that you let us know how we're doing with a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. The show is produced by me, Jess Delfiaco, and edited by Drew Birchbach. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunctional. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Jess Delfiaco, and I hope you'll join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power.